Hey, race community, Brent coming in live from my temporary headquarters in Southwest Wisconsin. And I am thrilled to be hosting Paul Clifford, the CEO of the Penn State Alumni Association, which is the largest dues paying alumni association in the universe. Paul, welcome to the show. Brett, thanks for having me. You know, we've actually stopped talking about being the largest alumni association in the universe and galaxy since they've discovered life in other places in the galaxy. So we don't want to, we don't want to overextend it, but certainly the largest alumni association or dues paying alumni association in the world. In the world. We'll scale it back <laughs> to in the world. And I just want to start, you know, Paul has come up in conversation with past guests, one being John Fudo. And John wrote that Paul is one of the top alumni relations professionals in the industry. He's an energetic, thoughtful, and dedicated leader who brings great value to his institution. Why did John write that, Paul? Well, I pay John very well to be my front man and, and my hype man. Um, but, but, but seriously, you know, John, everyone, uh, everyone needs a John Fido in their life. And, and what I mean by that is somebody who believes in you um, more than you would ever expect from yourself. And John has always been that for me. John gave me an opportunity to join his team at the University of Connecticut back in 2000 and has been a mentor and a sponsor and, and a true friend ever since then. Um, when I talk about mentoring uh, and when I talk to students about mentoring, I use John as my example. Um, and I talk about how to make the tr transition between being a mentor and being a sponsor, right? A mentor is somebody who will answer your phone call, who will answer the questions that you ask of them. They'll share their experience. A sponsor is someone who shares opportunity. And that is what John has done for me from hiring me at the University of Connecticut to asking me to co-author a book with him to presenting at conferences. And so I wouldn't be sitting where I am at Penn State if it wasn't for John Fido. I love it. It's a great kickoff to the conversation. And I think it's reflective of a couple of things. One, um, how, how critical mentorship is. And we have not had a guest yet on this podcast who uh, is not quick to cite mentors who maybe have become sponsors. And it is just remarkable in my life and yours how these sort of chance interactions um, really go on to shape your career, your life, your family. Uh, and John speaks very f fondly of the relationship that you all have developed. I think um, I'd love to just go back in time a little bit, uh, recognizing you grew up uh, in Pennsylvania. I'm sure you were a, uh, a, a huge Penn State fan growing up, just as I was an Iowa Hawkeye fan. Um, and you must have, I mean, what brands were more powerful in your life than the Penn State brand? And who was the, the Paul Clifford in high school, who was that raving Penn State fan, and could you have ever imagined yeah. you'd be sitting where you are right now? So I couldn't have imagined that I'd be sitting where I am right now. Uh, and you're, you're spot on. Since the time I was, that, that I can remember, I've been a Penn State fan. My dad's class of 72, uh, engineering graduate of Penn State. And we've been season ticket holders now, or would have been, had we had a football season this year for 38 seasons. And um, it's just been a big part of, uh, of my life and of our family. And, and Brent, you have young children. Uh, what, I, what I realized was that um, all those years of having season tickets, 
that um, that's how my dad chose to build family. Yes, he loved Penn State football and he loved um, coming to Happy Valley. But I actually think he loved the two hours in the car coming down here and the four-hour drive home uh, even better. Uh, and I say four-hour drive home because of the traffic after the games. Um, I think that's – he just wanted that time with us to pepper us with questions about our week. And uh, so I think that's how he chose to build family was through um, Penn State and Penn State football. But, yeah, it, is do it has dominated my childhood. I mean, I remember as a fifth and sixth grader already having focus issues but not being able to sit still on Wednesday and Thursday waiting because I knew – come Saturday. Well, come Friday, we're going to go to the high school football game. And then Saturday, we're going to drive out to Happy Valley. And on Sunday, we're going to watch the Eagles lose. And so that was kind of our, our weekends in the fall. I love it. And so you're advancing through high school. Obviously, sports is a part of your life. Right. Um, you've been exposed to, I guess, higher education. But when it came time to make your own college pick, Tell me about that. Uh, was it a difficult decision? And, and what do you think about? I also do want to acknowledge you have taken classes at more colleges and universities than most people <laughs> I know. So you've been a real yeah. kind of mystery shopper out there. Yeah, you know, I started. Um, so I'll go back to where I grew up in Pennsylvania. I grew up about three miles from one of our Commonwealth campuses at Penn State Hazleton. And so every day I'd drive to high school and I'd drive by Penn State Hazleton. And when I applied to Penn State, that's the campus that I got into. I didn't get into University Park. I got into Hazleton and had a good, would have had to go there for two years before going off to University Park. And I really just wanted that four-year college experience, right? I wanted to move away from home. And so my Penn State experience was deferred. I decided to go to Seton Hall. Uh, spent a year there. It was amazing. Um, and then for reasons that we won't go into on the podcast, I decided to transfer uh, three days before I was supposed to go back to Seton Hall. And I transferred to, to Bloomsburg at that time. Uh, I had a deferred admission there, went down there. My brother dared me to try out for the football team. So I walked on to the football team there at Bloomsburg and, uh, and made it. And what I thought was just going to be a short pit stop there actually turned into a three-year experience and um, made lifelong friends and met a woman that I'm married to today and still uh, unbelievably in love with. And we've just built this family and this life together. And so uh, sometimes you have to have a plan in mind and sometimes the, the forces around you just, just take control. control. And uh, that, that's what happened in my case. But, but as you said, had a career in higher education, um, ultimately was able to make it back to Penn State and just this past spring graduated with a Penn State degree. And so um, I'm the first of my father's children to graduate from Penn State uh, with a degree, class of 2020. I wouldn't want to be part of any other class except for this one. Uh, and it's just kind of the, the cherry on the top of a, a great relationship that I've had with Penn State throughout my life. Love it. And I do want to acknowledge, I was a little bit nervous hosting Paul because he's actually a prolific podcaster and he's got a new podcast. But I actually first remember even when I was doing my initial research when starting Evertrue, just uh, Googling the space and getting to know people. And I, I came across some of Andy Shanlin's work. 
who was blogging on Alumni Futures, but I also came across uh, Paul's podcast, which I think you were podcasting way before it was cool. But just tell me a little bit about how, as you've advanced through your career, um, look, ultimately, alumni leadership is about community building. And I think as we're in this now fully digital context, content and conversation and more scalable discussions have replaced in some regards or complemented the local chapter meetup or the tailgate. And so you've kind of always had, you've been on the forefront of just sharing and being public about your work, which is not all that common. Um, what was it along the way that caused you to start to, to sort of share and just tell me what your, your journey has been as it relates to adding yeah. the conversation in the sector? Yeah, so I'll go back to UConn when I was working with John and John was a member of the Council of Alumni Association Executives and he would go off to these conferences uh, twice a year and come back with just a plethora of information from our colleagues all over the country. He'd come back from a conference and I'd go into my office and I'd just see a, a stack of brochures and, and ideas that he came back with. And so when I went to East Carolina and had my opportunity to run uh, my first alumni program, uh, it was a goal of mine to become a member of CAAE. I wanted to be, as Hamilton might say, I wanted to be in the room where it happened, right? And, uh, and as you might be aware, my first three years in East Carolina, I did not get into CAAE. I, I was denied three years in a row. Uh, and then when I finally got and in, you had George Washington on your side. So it's really, <laughs> it's tough. I did. I did. Uh, so when I finally got in and was a part of these conversations with a hundred other colleagues from um, institutions around North America, it really struck me um, the perspective that I had both being on the outside and now being on the inside really struck me that there are some valuable conversations going on in this room that there are thousands of other professionals that would get a lot of value out of this. And, um, and we're so never going to get in that room. They're never going to get in that room. No. And yet they're dealing with the same things that we deal with. Uh, and, and if CAAE, and this isn't a criticism of CAAE, but if CAAE had been, publishing or had been writing about what was going on in there and doing something to disseminate that information, then it would have been a value add to the profession. That's, it's not what that organization's about. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I accept that and I don't begrudge them of that. So I took that as an opportunity to say, how can I engage some of these folks from CAAE in these conversations on a platform that can then be distributed to anybody who's looking for this kind of accessible professional development. And just as a point of context, if you're not aware of CAAE, you can check it out at alumniexecutives.org. Right. It started in the late 80s, and it's uh, basically a, a group of the chief alumni officers at the largest alumni associations uh, in, in the country. And I will say, actually, the first time that Paul and I really, uh, or one of the first times I think that we ever got connected was when I somehow snuck into a CAAE meeting uh, by way of JT Forbes, I believe, uh, right. down in Scottsdale. And it was really, actually, when I think about inflection points on our journey, earning an opportunity to present to that room, while I have 
no doubt in hindsight, uh, what we said was rough at best, um, was really just an incredible, an incredible opportunity that goes way beyond, you know, case conferences or frankly, any other conference that I've ever been a part of. And it's, um, but it is, it's hard to get into that room. Um, You know, obviously as a leader, as a vendor, almost impossible. I still am not sure how that happened. Yeah. And so that's, that was actually the origin story for the impact alumni podcast, which I ran for about uh, five years. And then my kids got uh, to the age where they were in baseball and I became a little league coach and uh, was doing all that kind of stuff with them. And then COVID-19 hit and I was just finishing up as a graduate student here at Penn state. And um, I submitted the podcast as an idea for my final project and it actually got denied because the emphasis is on writing and, and I, and I get that. And so I had to write a 40 page paper instead of the podcast, but that idea was there and it was percolating. And then all of a sudden, you know, COVID-19 hits and I'm at home and I'm craving those interactions with my colleagues. And, and I thought, well, let's, let's get the band back together, right? Let's start the podcast back up. And, and so I've done that. I've done it under a different brand because the original brand had, um, had been taken. It's, it's not available any longer, but um, the brand is uh, of lesser significance than the conversations that are actually being had. And so uh, it has been therapeutic. It has been uh, invigorating, kind of uh, just kind of a recharge of the batteries to, to get back into this and to have these discussions. And you're still relatively early on, but, but churning out regular episodes. And I'm curious kind of what stands out as being, I don't know, themes now or different uh, aspects of the conversation than you might've been having in 2010, 11, 12, 13, your first sort of time through. Also, you know, you've grown a lot and had new experiences. So that could be a factor, but does it feel different or does it actually feel pretty consistent with what you've done in the past? I think it feels a lot different. Um, even though the guests, if you look at the list, right, some of the guests, I only have like 10 friends. And so I keep going back to the same 10 friends. Uh, even though the guests have been the same, the conversations have been different. And, that, you know, I haven't really thought about this, but your question prompts, those conversations were very tactical. It was, tell me about this event that you sponsor or tell me about Uh, how you go about getting sponsorship. The conversations that we have been having now, I think are trending more strategic. And uh, that's probably, it probably has a lot to do with my bias and kind of the space that I sit in now versus where I sat 10 years ago. And that uh, my org, for me to be the CEO that Penn State needs, uh, I need to be, live at the strategic level. I need to pull myself out of the tactical day-to-day kind of uh, conversations. And so that's probably more of a reflection of um, the position that I hold versus where we are as an industry. So let's talk a little bit about your perspective on where we are as an industry, both broadly, but also specifically alumni engagement, alumni associations. When you think about, let's just say the 90s, you know, the early 2000s, and here as we sit in 2020, obviously a very different context, but right. with a few words, how would you sum up what an alumni association was in the 90s 
you know, what it evolved to be as you started to assume leadership roles. And really, when you think about 2020 to 2030, what, you know, how you would position the, the goals and the responsibilities? I mean, that's a big question, but I'll yeah. pose. Yeah. Um, I think in the 90s, I would describe us as um, So I'll tell you how we perceived ourselves. We perceived ourselves as the hub of the wheel in, in the 90s. Uh, in such, as, as such that we felt like alumni had to come through us to get to the institution or to get information about the institution or to get to other alumni, right? And I say we perceived ourselves that way because as we have gone on... Um, into the 21st century, we have realized that that was a misperception more than it was an accurate perception, but that's how we perceived ourselves and that's how we pursued it. Um, and so we were almost a firewall, if you will, to access to the institution and access to other alumni. And what I mean by misperception is that as technology was put in place and as social media really took hold on our day-to-day -day lives, we realized that we were never the hub of the wheel, uh, that we were uh, an equal partner or a rallying partner within a community. Uh, and we now have to find our space in that community so that we can uh, find our ways to add value within that community. And so that's, that, that's I think, the biggest difference between when I got into this and, and where we sit today. Um, and then there's nuances that have changed uh, all along the way from it being a mass marketing approach to thinking that every alum thinks about the institution uh, in the same way to now being a more individualized approach and having um, the want or desire for more customization. Some of that has been uh, the desire of our alumni all along and some of that has been market driven by how people interact with other technologies, how they interact when they shop on Amazon, how they interact when they go to Netflix and they're getting recommendations. And, and so uh, I think that has uh, really kind of elevated um, our conversations that we have around engagement. Uh, it's no longer Paul Rucker, my friend out at the University of Washington and I talk about this all the time. And uh, it, it's something that I say when, when I talk to groups of, of professionals is that I didn't come to Penn State to lead the pep rally. Yes, I love football. Yes, I love being on stage to lead the pep rally. But I came to Penn State to lead a movement. It's, it's a mobilization of alumni around the hopes and aspirations of the institution and in service to each other. And, and, and that's what I really think that the purpose of an alumni association, the purpose of an advancement office is it's to connect alumni to what they're passionate about at your institution in ways that move them to action. And those actions are philanthropy, joining, volunteering. And when you think about that spectrum, I love it. You know, the pep rally, the rah-rah tailgate, where, look, the reality is a lot of the traditions or the history is rooted there. But right. when you think about this idea of being a catalyst for social change, of being a catalyst for professional advancement of, uh, of, of the alumni careers, for example, 
what, what comes to mind as being some of the greatest success stories that you've been around either at Penn State or with Paul Rucker or your peers in CAAE when you think about pep rallies on one hand and really delivering on that, I think, more bolder mission on the other, who's doing that really well? What are the examples we should be looking at? So I think an untold story in advancement over the past 20 years, ever since institutions have been starting to push towards billion dollar campaigns, I think the untold story is the investment that was made in those alumni communities to get institutions to the point where they could raise a billion dollars from an active alumni community. And I think that that untold story is actually, um, or, or institutions being able to run billion dollar campaigns. And now at Penn State, we are on our second and moving towards our third billion dollar campaign. And not necessarily about the dollars raised, but about the impact that those dollars have. I, I think that's an untold success story uh, around the, the value and impact that alumni associations could have. If not for that investment in those relationships, the 30 years prior to those campaigns, then the alumni population wouldn't have been engaged as educated, as ready to move when the institution asked them to, as they were when institutions started calling. So I don't know, that, that might be a bold take. I might get some, I might get some uh, really strong pushback from others in the advancement world. Uh, but if not for an engaged populace, we wouldn't be sitting where we are raising the kind of money that we do in higher education. And how do you feel uh, about the tension though? I agree completely. And I have always looked at the sector maybe somewhat simplistically as being, you know, the best brands in the world have marketing teams that authentically engage people, right. bring them down a funnel, convert them as customers, and then grow that customer relationship over time. There have been moments when I've suggested, hey, one of the real benefits of an alumni association can be lead generation for fundraising because yeah. philanthropy is a huge revenue driver and it's gonna be more important in the coming years than ever before in light of the pressures we're feeling from COVID. Sometimes that rubs people the wrong way. I actually think it kind of aligns with what you said, which is if you really wanna get more budget and more staffing for an alumni organization to build a modern digitally enabled uh, unit, the more you can link your work to lead generation for development and not feel guilty or bad about it, the better off you oh, will yeah. be. Not everybody agrees. I mean, where do you think about, obviously some alumni associations have very strong independent um, roots. And so the idea that they're gonna become lead gen for fundraising just really can be uncomfortable for people. So ever since my first days in the profession at James Madison University working for Jeff Polglaze and then for John up at uh, the University of Connecticut, I have always thought of myself as a fundraiser. I have always thought of myself as being an integral role in the fundraising process. Now, it wasn't until much later in my career that I actually started to ask people for money and be on that end of it. But make no doubt that the work that we do in alumni relations is absolutely, as you have described, an important piece to the fundraising process, right? We talk about lifelong relationships. We talk about the value of annual funds and how uh, many major uh, donors start off with that five and $10 gift that ultimately leads to 
a transformational gift, both for the, the donor and for the institution. Um, but I would say that, uh, that it has to be, our work has to be set in the context of what the institution values, right? And so I know institutions value increased funding, right? Institutions value opportunities for students to gain employment. Um, and so those are two areas that I really think that the narrative has really shifted around the work of alumni relations, right? That's why we have built robust career, alumni career services programs so that we can continue to talk about how we have a lifelong commitment to career and professional development of our students, right? It's delivering on that promise that we make to them. You chose our institution. We're gonna help you get this job. We're gonna help you get the next job. We're gonna help you forever. Yeah. But it's also about, it's also about alumni engagement with a purpose, right? The, the goal of alumni relations isn't to engage alumni. It's to engage alumni in a way that moves them to action. And, and, and those actions are things that the institution also values. And so it's philanthropy, it's joining the association, it's volunteerism, all things that uh, the institution really places a value on. And so that's how I think the modern alumni relations professional thinks about the work that they do. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the challenges Unlike most marketers, like, let, let's say that alumni leaders are marketing leaders for, for the institution. Um, most marketers of, of most products are able to say, I've got a persona. You know, my persona is a 30-something uh, parent of two, and we're going to target those people on Facebook and Instagram, and we're going to create content that really resonates with that specific persona. One of the biggest challenges that I see in higher ed advancement leadership is your persona is literally everyone. It is, it is rich and poor. It is young and old. It is domestic and global. And you have so many different sub personas beyond that Penn state alumni uh, categorization that, you know, have to make it almost somewhat overwhelming when you think about where do we really focus our time? Is it plan giving for people that are thinking about, you know, their legacy, is it helping young alumni get jobs during the most uh, highly disrupted labor market in history? Is it everything in between? And so how do you think about serving a 650,000 person community, but at the same time making bets where you're really uniquely positioned to deliver? Yeah. I want to address like the first part of, of your question. Uh, when you talk about our work as being, um, as, as marketing, which I absolutely agree with. And I think that's been a shift over, over years is to really think about target audiences and how we are segmenting and thinking about the work that we do. It feels more like more and more like working on Madison Avenue, right? Than it does in the ivory tower. Uh, but what I will say is, is that marketing uh, from an alumni association or from a university perspective is much different than the top brands in the world, right? You don't meet somebody and in the first 10 minutes, they tell you, I drink at Starbucks, right? I get my coffee from Starbucks or I drive a Mercedes, right? But they do tell you I went to Brown or yeah. I went to Iowa or I went to Penn State. And so there is that, um, it is that deeper connection. It's that, that um, people see their education 
as something that's part of the their fabric of their life, right? It's it's something that's quintessentially them, and so uh, it, it's not as much of a consumer decision uh, in terms of marketing as it is a lifestyle and relationship uh, kind of decision. And you're not doing lead generation, right? When the new right. coffee shop opens up that you've never heard of, you've got to build awareness. You've got to get them to try it for the first. Anybody that's an alum of Penn State is all, you know, has already made the investment, right? They're already the customer. Talked right. a lot about this at Steve Hall with Steve Hall at Boston University. If we think about the life cycle, you know, by the time they become alumni, they've already made a massive purchase that is going to define their life <laughs> in, in a large part. Right. And so that is such a massive advantage relative to somebody on Madison Avenue that's trying to catch eyeballs and compete versus seeing that Penn State logo and having that strong starting point. But I almost wonder in a certain regard, Paul, has that been a crutch? That, you know, the fact that there's such strong brand affinity, you know, I always wonder what if we could deliver a world-class content marketing, brand marketing, and start with such a strong awareness and affinity, you know, is there not missed yeah. opportunity? Yeah. So I think, I think what I have just described is both a blessing and a curse for the, for our institutions, especially for institutions that can't activate on personalized engagement. And so it's a blessing that, we know that we are in the hearts of our alumni, right? It's a curse that we don't exactly know why we're in their hearts, right? Was it because of an academic experience that they've had or were they part of social movements when they were on our campus or did something happen in athletics that was life-changing for them, right? So we talk about these relationships that we have with our alumni and yet we don't know them necessarily as well as we should to call them family because we can't activate on why we're in their heart and that that becomes a business and a data issue, right? Uh, and, and so I think we need to take, while it's a relationship business, right? We, we need to take a really scientific and data-driven approach to the work that we're doing. Uh, that's why I love the work that you all are doing that, and the insights that it gives to advancement professionals that we're never going to get from our database. It, uh, somebody's class year is only going to help me understand what was going on in the world when they graduated, right? Somebody's degree is only going to be an indicator of the kind of work that they were prepared to do when they left here. Their current title only tells me what they do now, but it doesn't tell me how they've been affected by the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, or or what their COVID-19 work from home experience has been. Are they a part-time teacher now because they have two kids that are there? It's, it's that level of detail and personalization that I think we need to continue to strive for so that we can have these absolutely kind of meaningful conversations with alumni that really shows that we know we're in your heart and more importantly, we know why we're in your heart. And I, I think we can get there, Paul. I mean, we got a long way to go. I appreciate the kind words. But on one hand, it can seem a little bit overwhelming to have a 650,000 person community and, right. you know, several hundred advancement professionals. How do you possibly um, build personalized relationships with just that ratio of constituent to staff member? But then we look at 
small e-commerce brands that have 2 million customers and they're able to do so much through automation and better segmentation and personalization. And, and we've still got a ways to go and there are constraints, but if those e-commerce brands who nobody ever heard of four years ago have been able to figure it out, I know that there's going to be ways that we can continue to improve. And it's not like we got to fix it all overnight, but you know, one of the, the, the stats we have really been obsessing over, and, and you heard it in our Summer of Rays kickoff, is just the reality is that for most institutions, less than 2% of their constituents have gift officers assigned to building a relationship with them, which means we've got to reach 98% of our communities in a non-direct, you know, high-touch manner, right. which is where, you know, technology has to play a part. And not just ever true. I mean, things that texting can offer things that we can do via retargeting in different, um, you know, ad platforms. I think that we're just really finally starting to scratch the surface, um, you know, as it relates to activating some of that tech in the advancement sector. Yeah. I think what you're touching on is, um, is the complexity of kind of built that way from the start, like some of these startups are versus um, change and change management and, um, we didn't have and, and an alumni get magazine and a tailgate program and chapters that they had right. to maintain and a robust volunteer network with opinions. And they also don't have to deal with an audience, not deal with, but serve an audience right. that is old, young, rich, poor, domestic, global. They all have their niche. And so I think that's where it can be a little bit more, more manageable. But yeah. But I, and, in, and in many cases where history, tradition and heritage are kind of held closely are held close right and so some of those things that you touched on well that's that's breaking your tradition and that's going against our history at the institution um and so i think sometimes like i said certainly a blessing and and a curse well let's uh talk about i I once read in, in your interview when you were uh when you accepted the job i love this question that you were asked uh somebody asked you if you could be any dinosaur which would you be and why? And you said that you'd be a velociraptor because they're swift right. and agile. And those are characteristics that are important for two, uh, 21st century alumni associations. Now, uh, they also travel in packs and we're the ultimate team players. Now, you yeah. said that in 2015. I don't think we've ever seen a moment of swifter and more agile operating uh, than we've seen out of higher ed and alumni associations in the last several months. And so- right. As you think about this, you know, we went through this period where it was just literally, can we work from home? Let's all get used to Zoom. You know, let's start to embrace these, these technologies. We then started to see, I think, many circumstances. Cindy Frederick at, at UVA shared some just incredible examples where, wait a second, when we start to engage our audience in this manner, we can reach people who we've never reached before. I just heard right. something um, uh, yesterday from, from one of your peers who said that, uh, uh, it was Fred Van Sickle, who's the senior vice president at Cornell, said that in their recent shift to online engagement through uh, Zoom and other channels, 18% of the people who've participated had no record of engagement historically. So wow. there's sort of this moment where we went into kind of panic, you know, what do we got to do to just operate to, well, here we are, let's start testing some new concepts. And I think as we sit here in mid-August, we're starting to see, wait a second, 
maybe this is the way we should be running big parts of our operation. What's that journey been like for Penn State? Well, first of all, I got to give a shout out to our friends at Onward State for that interview. Uh, one of my most terrifying interviews with the, with the student-run media uh, outlet here in State College. And, uh, and I do remember that. I do remember that answer. I, it probably also tells you I'm a, a Jurassic Park fan. I love um, it. But, and I want to say this, and, and, and I don't want this to come across the wrong way. And so I want, with absolute respect and kind of honoring what's going on in the world right now in terms of COVID-19 and people absolutely being sick and, and losing their lives to it. I, I don't want my answer to diminish any of that. Um, but I will say that COVID-19 and this work from home state over the past five, six months now has been the crisis that the Alumni Association and that our industry has been waiting for. We would have never changed as quickly as we had over the past six months if we weren't forced to if we weren't forced to think about, okay, now our mission, the traditional way that we've advanced our mission has been taken away from us. How do we uh, respond to that? How do we, I, I hate to use the cliches, but how do we pivot in this moment to do something that we had always planned on doing and always wanted to do, but has only ever been on a wish list? Uh, now that's our only option. And so, uh, and, I, and I couldn't be more proud of my team. Uh, my team who has their own personal situations, uh, whether it's children studying at home, whether it's limited access to internet and, and other resources that we learn about our colleagues that are just heartbreaking. Um, they have stood up and responded uh, in an unbelievable way. And it's, it's about standing up um, all of these virtual opportunities being really creative. I, I, tell you, I have a fundraiser that I work with, Nancy Bird. Um, and when she was taken off the road and, uh, and told, you still have to connect with people. You still have to make your visits, right? Boy, she has responded. So Penn State is famous. Uh, one of the things we're famous for is our ice cream. She started having ice cream socials with groups of donors where we would send them creamery ice cream. We'd get together on Zoom. We'd talk about our favorite ice cream. And that conversation would evolve into a really authentic conversation about what they love most about Penn State. And then that, as you know, we take that and we try to craft ways that we can connect their philanthropy to those things. We did coffee and grilled stickies, which is another staple here in Happy Valley coffee and grilled stickies with another group. We've done wine and cheese nights with cheese from the, from the dairy farm. Uh, we're going to do virtual. Uh, so we have a suite at the football stadium. We're going to do virtual suite engagement where uh, we're going to get together and the topic's going to be maybe the greatest comebacks in Penn State football history. And we're going to get people together in the suite, the virtual suite, and, and have conversations around that. She has been so creative in yeah. this in this moment and my event planners and my volunteer uh, team. Uh, I think about the Black Lives Matter movement and how that has, uh, how COVID-19 has actually benefited that movement in terms of um, elevating our attention that we are now paying to it because, because of 
kind of where we are and where we are as a country and where we are physically. Um, but we have been able to engage our volunteers in conversations around what white supremacy actually means and what does that mean in an alumni association context or what does institutional racism look like and how do we, how do we identify it and how do we, uh, how do we go about eliminating it? It has been, uh, it has been um, a, a learning opportunity for me. It has been eye-opening, uh, but it, it has also been a, an inspiring time for me to understand the privilege that I hold, understand that my alumni association, as great as it might be, can get even better if yeah. we bring more and more people along with us. And, yeah. and so, um, and so, yeah, I, I would say uh, we have taken on the Velociraptor mentality here yeah. for the past six months and I couldn't be more pleased with my team. Well, look, I love those examples. And, you know, that is sometimes what it takes, that forcing function just to innovate. We all have it in us. I mean, my team, I feel the same way. We had this raise conference planned in Boston. It was going to be the fifth annual, our 10th year as a company. We had budgeted probably $100,000 to put on an incredible yeah. event, which for us, that's, you know, as much as we could ever imagine spending. COVID happens. It becomes clear we're not going to be able to have it in person. If we had had it in person, we might have had three to 400 people there. Instead, we had over 2,500 people register online. We were able to deliver it at a fraction of the cost. And it, it, I think in some ways, we were actually able to come up with a better experience. And that's where I think there's been, you know, we've been so rooted in, well, if you're going to raise a big gift, you obviously have to go and see them. You probably need to bring a dean or somebody with you at some point. For a certain level, the president's definitely going to need to show up. And I think what we've now just realized, like the sheer amount of time like think about how much time Nancy is saving when she's not transferring through Philly to go wherever and right. having the delayed connection and then, you know, getting settled in the hotel to go have that one hour meeting. Like that is just hours and hours um, that you then get to reapply to. Well, if I'm not going to be in person, how can I make it maybe even better? How can I get people together and have group meetings, ice cream? I love all of that. We, we saw a study recently from EAB that said, the average frontline fundraiser, the median front, frontline fundraiser last year had 33 field visits. Even though they have 100 or 150 person visit goals, they actually had 33. If there are about 2,000 working hours in a year, you're talking over 20 hours per visit that people are achieving. That's a lot of extra time for people like Nancy to get creative. And so I love, I love those examples. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, and I learned this from Mike Andreasen out of the University of Oregon when I worked for Mike. Um, there's something special that happens when you get groups of donors together, small groups, sharing ideas. Some of them are competitive. Some of them make the other person's idea better by contributing to it. And so those small groups, I think, are, are brilliant. And Mike has done this probably better than anyone that I've seen in higher education in terms of getting the top eight couples that are donors to the University of Oregon together, they call it the group of eight, getting them together and letting them, uh, letting them talk. And you know who those people are, right? They've run Microsoft, they've run Nike, they've run Columbia. I mean, these are people who um, don't lack ideas. There's not a lack of innovation in that room. 
and you get them together and they compete with each other and they make each other's ideas better, there's no better environment um, than that for, uh, for a development officer to <coughs> begin to hone what their asks might look like. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think, you know, it's hard to get schedules aligned historically yeah. for people like that who are busy, who are traveling. And I do think there's been an, an element as well when everyone's a Zoom link away and mostly, uh, you know, physically present at home or, or maybe in their office right. somewhat. Um, it's a lot easier to get those conversations going, even if it isn't as special as being in the suite, you know, in person necessarily. Um, I think just the ability to accelerate the pace of play uh, in engaging people along those lines is going to, is going to be something I hope we can take with us uh, on the other side of, of COVID uh, whenever that may be. Um, I guess I would sort of want to be respectful of time here, but when you think about some of the, and you've already mentioned some incredible leaders in our sector, obviously you're being on the inside at CAAE, but when you think about the best advancement professionals that you've worked with, what are the characteristics or traits that come to mind um, when you think about building your dream team of, of advancement leaders? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it first starts with um, the best that I've ever worked around have been in the industry for the right reasons. I mean, there is no more noble profession than raising money for higher education. Higher education is going to solve all of the world's ailments, right? Whether it's social injustice or curing cancer or the problem with literacy uh, around the world. All of those things are being studied on college campuses around the world. And so an investment in higher education is an investment in solving the world's problems. And, and the best that I have ever worked with um, have had that as part of their why, that, that their way in changing the world is through advancing higher education. Uh, and so I would, whether it's Jen Heisey at the University of Cincinnati or Mike Worley down at Lander University or the others that I have mentioned, um, uh, some of the, the best thought leaders in our, in our industry um, are really solidly grounded in their why and it makes them, it makes them that. Uh, I would also say that they are um, the best at what we do, uh, are also vulnerable enough and display empathy um, more often than you might think um, a leader might. Uh, I think of, and I hope I'm not share, oversharing, but I think of the, the kind of raw and honest conversations that Paul Rucker and I have. Um, Paul is one of the uh, most thoughtful, but also most empathetic leaders that I have, that I have ever been around. I think of JT Forbes and, uh, and, and how uh, each conversation that I've ever had with him since COVID-19 starts and ends with his people and, and um, how he, the leadership challenge that we are all facing at keeping our team focused on mission and, and motivated to continue to pursue that. Um, so yeah, the people centered on their why uh, really empathetic and um, and caring leaders are 
I think uh, is at least the start of what makes a good advancement professional. Very valuable perspective, Paul. I guess in conclusion today, uh, obviously there have been a lot of challenges in 2020 and there are more challenges ahead of us, no doubt, but you remain um, optimistic and passionate and committed when you think about um, uh, your podcast, you, you know, your work, what are you most excited about in, in the coming months and, um, and where can people find you if they want to stay in touch? Well, certainly you can find me at the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm virtually here in the Hintz Family Alumni Center. You can find out more about the programs that me and my team run at alumni.psu.edu. If you're a fellow advancement professional, I'd ask and hope that you might check out the podcast at alumnitrending.com or in one of your favorite podcast uh, apps that you listen to. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on on Google Podcasts, but alumnitrending.com uh, to get more information like this uh, from professionals like like Brent Grinna and all the people who are having a great impact on higher education through advancement. I did get a message from Paul at one point where I thought just because I had waited too long to invite him to the podcast here at the Rays podcast that he just decided that he would start his own podcast. He just wasn't going to wait any longer. So it's good to know more of the backstory. Um, but we're thrilled to elevate uh, your voice to our audience. And, um, and I look forward to future collaborations, Paul. Thank you for everything that you do for this sector and for your guidance over the years. Well, I'd say the same right back to you, Brett. It's, it's people like you that are also in this sector that push us forward. And you know, I've, I've loved the work that you have been doing ever since you got into this. I love your origin story as being a volunteer. There's no more uh, authentic origin story for an entrepreneur in this space than yours and, and the ever true origin story. And so I love you. I love all that you're doing. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Right back at you. Be well. Mm -hmm.